Welcome to the next episode of Modified Roles, featuring the cast of DMs After Dark. My name is Troy, the person who's been ragged on relentlessly for the past two episodes. I am here in the flesh to bring you an introduction to the world of role-playing horror. Insert creepy music here. Can we get like a, a thunder sound? Oh, yeah. oh yeah. yeah, I'll get a <laughs> lightning crack. Leave that audio in too, like Sarah. Like, can we get a thunder oh, and like put the thunder in right yeah. there? Leave it all organic. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, hello everybody. Hey Troy. Uh, I'm new to the Modified Roles. This is going to be the first time I'm joining the rest of the crew, but I am very excited for talking about horror, uh, especially in role-playing games. It is one of my personal favorite, I guess, themes to explore, and I like it for a lot of reasons, and I think if you do it right, I think it can be incorporated across pretty much any platform. What do uh, what do you guys think about that? Yeah, I would agree, Troy. I think that, um, I think there are many really good horror games out there that are, are particularly they're just made to be horror role-playing games but horror is something that you can insert into any game as long as you're playing it correctly you can insert it into a space game like we're going to do tomorrow as a matter of fact when we run uh we run mothership although this will be this will be released after we run mothership and i've killed all, all my players here this is christian and i'm going to kill all these people uh but bring it on grandpa you, <laughs> oh fuck you oh wow <laughs> I'm dying oh, uh, you can you can put it into superhero game. You can you can put it into a fantasy role playing game, including the world's most popular fantasy role playing game. Uh, it's all just a matter of, of how you do it. Yeah, debatably the most popular module in Dungeons and Dragons Fifth Edition is Curse of Strahd, and that's them doing their take on fantasy horror. So far, say that is not debatable. It's just objectively the best one. <laughs> It's a hard argument to go against, for sure. Uh, Lost Mind of Fandelver, perhaps, might be better. <laughs> Lost Mind is, is the best introductory D&D adventure, I would say, pretty much ever, to like teach you the rules and stuff. But like, Curse of Strahd's the best campaign. <laughs> Fair enough. So I would actually, as somebody who um, normally, you know, I have a lot to talk about when we do these uh, modified roles episodes, because I nerd out hard on collecting RPGs and reading rules. But horror is that genre that, uh, for those of you, of you for those of you who are listening, uh, you've probably at this point heard that I'm too much of a wuss to play in Mothership and Amber's Bluebeard's Bride game uh, because I just, no, it's not that I'm afraid to play these horror games. Yeah, no, it's fine. Yeah. It's fine. But Rainy, you're going to be with us in spirit. Yes. Well, so it's good. But I did find that when we started talking about this and we were doing our October lineup, I realized that I don't really own a lot of horror RPGs because it's a genre that. My, me myself I've never really gotten into either you know reading books reading horror books anything like that or running games so I'm excited to hear what you guys who are familiar with games like Call of Cthulhu and Bluebeard's Bride and you know things like that have to say and how people can learn to run these games effectively and really ramp up that tension mm. 
I, I agree. I, I will say this. So I think, um, you know, you, you brought up the fact that you don't, you don't necessarily own a lot of those types of genres and that it doesn't necessarily like, you're not gravitating towards those, but I do think there is something to be said for horror games. And the fact that, um, there's almost something that's like ancient about fear. It's primal, right? If you think about people, it's very primal. I mean, biologically, our, our brain, the most basic components of our brain react to fear, like fight or flight. You have an adrenal response. So I think we all know what fear is across cultures, across continents. Like it doesn't matter. Every The human condition is intimately familiar with fear. And I think that is very appealing when you can put that in a role-playing game because people might not understand People might not have ever role-played before. They might not understand the specific rules or the concepts of a particular game. But one thing everybody understands is, oh, shit, this is scary, right? That's something everybody gets. So I think that is uh, unique about horror and about um, – and I do, I do want to just make a quick distinction between – um, something that is horrific and something that is scary, because I, I think I don't know. Do you guys think that is something that's important to uh, to know? Yeah, well, if you're talking about horror um, as like a genre or an element, it kind of um, it has it has some more complexities than just fear um, and requirements such as atmosphere, um, feeling of isolation. Those are all very um, important things in horror as an experience. That's what I was going to actually ask was fear is absolutely a human emotion that everyone can relate to. And role-playing games are definitely a pastime that people do to experience emotional reactions and put themselves in situations that they are either excited to engage with or are potentially excited to explore for the first time or the 90th time. But horror is one of those things that I feel like it's a really difficult thing to capture because you either have to know what people are going to react to and be um, afraid of. Again, that's probably not the right word, but things that are going to really... Elicit a response. Elicit a response, yeah. Um, what's the word they use in movies? You need to suspend disbelief. Yeah. Definitely, I would say a good a good horror game needs needs a lot of buy-in at the table. Uh, it, it needs a really good session zero where, where you go over and you know your player limits really, really well. And, and there's kind of needs to be a lot of communication as far as, as you know, even during the game. Uh, I would wholeheartedly encourage something like an X card because you just you just don't know when something's going to affect you. And, and you could be fine with something and, and think, you know, philosophically or intellectually, like, okay, this is not going to bother me. You know, you told me this might come up in the game. It's going to be okay. And then that moment comes and something comes up in the game and you're like, oh, shit. You know, I'm, I'm feeling something that I'm not happy about right now. Uh, and so you need to have a lot of communication when, when you play these games. Uh, and I think that coming from playing other role-playing games and trying to do horror, make the leap to horror, one of the things that I think people struggle with is that a horror, an RPG that specifically is geared towards horror, like Call of Cthulhu, which I've actually written for, uh, and, and publish scenarios for, plug myself, haha. Uh, <laughs> Stygian Fox, Stygian Fox, Sonora and the Sins of St. Sonora. Um, let's find it on Drive-Thru RPG. <laughs> by, by my adventure. <laughs> <laughs> by my adventure. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, absolutely. Yeah. You should be proud of that. But uh, RP horror RPGs invert the typical framework of an RPG, which is a power fantasy. 
Dungeons & Dragons is a power fantasy, you're powerful. A superhero role-playing game, you're a superhero. Star Wars, you're a Jedi. Whatever. You're, you're powerful. You're playing someone who goes out in the world and does things, right? And in horror, you know, the Call of Cthulhu book literally says, you're a normal person who's going to confront something that's fucking awful, and you're going to go apeshit insane or get squished. In Bluebeard, you, you are a woman and you are helpless. <laughs> and you are you are a victim. That's what horror you games, are. <laughs> horror games... That, Exactly. Horror games put the players in uncomfortable positions because their characters are powerless. You're not playing powerful people. You're playing powerless people. And that is, that's a big step from the typical role-playing game framework. And you have to work with that. And as a GM, it requires a lot because you have to be cognizant of that. And what, you know, you have to create a sandbox or, or a, an environment at the table where your players can still have fun. Yeah, and it takes a, what you're talking about, um, player buy-in too. It takes also um, a willingness of players to be uncomfortable and certain like traditional games, like a traditional fantasy game or something. You talk to people about safety and you're like, you know, if anything makes you uncomfortable, like X card, like lines and veils, like whatever you need to do, we don't want you to be uncomfortable. But in horror, discomfort is requirement. It's no longer just like, does this make me uncomfortable? Not it's fuzzier than that. It's does this make me too uncomfortable? It's there's like, you will be uncomfortable. It's required for the game. It's the point of the game. Um, and it's, so the player has a much more difficult and the GM and the whole group has a much more difficult uh, balance of deciding what is unsafe amount of discomfort and what is just the feeling of unsafety. And there has to be a willingness from everyone to participate in that. Um, now, I, I will ask as, as one of the, I don't know how to say it other than like horror babies at the table Me too. as someone who has never run a horror game and whose horror gaming experience is exclusively limited by a couple of christian's call of cthulhu games and then the one shots we're going to be doing this month how do you as a gm figure out that balance like as amber said between uncomfortable and too uncomfortable like how do you decide on what level of horror is right for your play group yeah, that's um, that's actually something that I don't think the GM can decide upfront. GM can do their um, like as much pre work as they can, warning people about like certain content that may appear. But really, a lot of that responsibility ends up being on the players. Like the GM doesn't know if you're just uncomfortable or if you are too uncomfortable. If you are experiencing um, the illusion of danger, or if you are actually in danger, unless you tell them and communicate that honestly and effectively as a player. So there's a there's a lot of responsibility on the players in horror games there to uh to know their own limits and to communicate that. The GM can only do so much with an upfront content warning. And then at that point, they're just they're just GMing. You have to tell them what's too hard and what and trust yourself with like what you can handle. Um, I would I would say too that, you know, one of the things earlier I don't know if it was uh, Jess or Rainey had said like, oh, how do you how do you know what's gonna scare your players? You don't you really don't. Uh, and how to adjust on the fly, uh, like Amber, Amber said, it's perfect. It's really up to the players. But as a GM, I always really try really, really hard to kind of read the room and know when I'm going too far uh, because you don't want to ever make someone uncomfortable. Too uncomfortable. Too uncomfortable. Right. Too, not too uncomfortable. Want to make them uncomfortable. Just not too uncomfortable. <laughs> too uncomfortable. Uh, In a horror game, you do want to make them uncomfortable. Just not past the point that they've consented to <laughs> we ran a um when we started sarah was a player in a, in a call of cthulhu uh, campaign that i ran was uh stygian fox's hudson and brand where you you create this uh 1890 sherlock holmes kind of detective agency 
uh, and investigate awful Cthulhu things. And uh, the very first inve investigation is called the, the Mystery of Bare Knuckle Bill. It's in their, in their book. And it's finding out what happened to the original owners of this agency who the players in inherited it from. And in that, there is a, uh, you go, the boxer's missing. You find the place where the, the warehouse where the match plate took place. And there's a, you know, a path through the sewers where you go into this place where there's this, you know, kind of horrible woman who's leading this cult. Uh, but in the sewers, as you get there, she's got this tiger called named Skanda. Okay, she's got a pet tiger, and she's fed this tiger some drugs, and he's grown a third eye. The eye of the tiger. So he's just a three-eyed tiger. And I didn't think anything of that. Yeah, he's got three eyes of the tiger. Uh, and... <laughs> And so I never, I didn't think anything of that. I was like, well, it's kind of cool. It's something that, you know, obviously could kill them. So I did the typical, uh, you know, don't show the monster right away, lead up to it. You hear growls, you find eaten people, you hear, you know, you find bones, you start to smell an animal. And so it built up tension in that session. And then, you know, they, they kind of, they saw Skanda, but they had taken this um, medallion off one of the other, one of the cult members. So they were able to pass him, you know, safely. But the fact that there was a three-eyed tiger absolutely freaked the hell out of one of the players. Like, freaked her the hell out. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. Because I didn't, I didn't think anything of it. I was like, yeah, whatever, three-eyed tiger. I mean, trust me, there's much worse in the building. They found out really quickly. But, uh, you know, hey, you never know what's going to scare people. The things that you think are just like, hey, this is a cool little encounter along the way. will wind up having people having like, genuine moments of, of fear and terror, which is great. I think, Jess, you haven't had an opportunity to say anything yet. I, I want to piggyback off of what they're talking about right now. But before I did that, I wanted to see if you had anything you wanted to add uh, on this topic. No, I, you know, I'm kind of with Sarah and Rainey on the the unexperienced horror side of RPGs. Um, I have run a somewhat horror-themed game adventure before, just in that it was... Um, I had run The Blight, which was written for Pathfinder, and it was kind of set in a grim, uh, it's funny because I hate zombies, but it's a zombie-esque themed world. Meat punk. Yeah, uh, that's a great word for it. <laughs> Meat, Meat punk. punk. Yeah. But um, yeah, I don't have too much experience. I'm kind of here more to learn as well, just uh, how you kind of create horror. I'm always compelled by horror. Um, I, I like um, just the the idea of kind of facing that tension, but it's not something that I regularly create or seek out in games either. Mm. So yeah, I, I don't have too much to add on my Okay. End. I just figured I would ask because I wanted you to get, get your chance to get some input. I know, uh, uh, you know, some of us have more to say regarding horror just because we're a little more familiar with it. Yeah. But uh, one thing that I wanted to bring up, uh, which is, you know, we talked about, uh, something that makes horror effective is that it has to be uh, believable in a sense. And I think, um, you know, if you just have a constant buildup and there's just buildup, 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 there's, there's no lulls or anything like that. It can get a little overwhelming and it can also get very two dimensional. I think one of the things that makes horror more effective is when you do have that contrast in those ebbs and flows. So I'm going to reference um, shadows of Esterin because Number one, it's the game that we just played, uh, and I am in love with this game. But I think it does a great job. One of the most horrific things about the game is how it's contrasted by moments of absolute you know, beauty, or there is almost a poetic sadness, or you know, these different types of things. There's moments of mourning, but there's also moments of joy. And I think horror is, 
is a perfect uh, emotion or feel or theme to have dichotomies with. You should have moments of joy. You should have moments where people are laughing and funny and stuff, because then when that horrific moment comes, people are caught off guard or people are like, oh, shit, this I is would, real. I would absolutely jump on that. Yeah, I would jump on that, Troy, to say absolutely comedy and horror go together like ketchup and mustard. Like pickles like and ice cream. Peanut butter and jelly, whatever. <laughs> they, they go together very well. You should have those moments in your games. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and and there, there's kind of, in my experience, one of the best ways to articulate that and to include that, um, that dichotomy and that contrast is through exploring the um, player's five senses. Um, and, and a lot of that is done through imagery um, and scenery. So, you know, explaining, you know, a beautiful how something um, looks to a player, um, how something smells or tastes or feels um, that that's a great way to illustrate not only, you know, horror, but also other aspects, other themes. Um, and maybe someone else can probably expand on that a little bit, I would imagine. Yeah, I actually want to jump in here again, not having a whole lot of experience running horror games, but just being a horrible person. Yeah. No. Yeah, that's me. Um, but no, a few things that I think are really interesting. One, Christian's comment about the subversion of the power trope is amazing because that's so true about horror. You're not playing the hero. You're playing the person trying to survive. But one thing that I always think of when I think of horror games, especially horror RPGs, is in my mind, horror and like, you know, scary movies and thrillers and things like that are very visual mediums, right? They are the kind of things where, and it's, I'm not talking jump scares, but it's about seeing those things that might make you uncomfortable and playing that in a vocal in a you know in a game where you're basically just having conversations is really interesting and i am about to jump into mechanics talk because again that's my niche i love talking mechanics for games so if anybody has anything to say cut me off now but i think it's really uh, yeah one quick thing before we switch topics Go ahead. um just piggybacking off of what troy is talking about juxtaposition and horror um, another thing that that's that's really important that having that contrast and juxtaposition does is it provides stakes. Um, and stakes are something that are especially important in horror. They're important in all stories, but especially in horror because if it's just bad after bad after bad and there's nothing to want and there's no hope of anything better in the game, the both the players and the character will essentially give up and they will cease to experience horror. They've just quit on the world. They're like, there's nothing good in this world. I don't actually care anymore. Um, so by providing uh, contrast and those moments of beauty and those moments of laughter and camaraderie and friendship and love, that gives them something to fight, to keep surviving or enduring, even against uh, impossible odds and abject helplessness, um, which is very important. Literally shadows of Estrin. <laughs> they should always end on a ray of light, though, right? Like even the best horror movies end with that not little always. sliver of hope. Oh, no, no, not no. Always. You don't have to, no? There has to be no. that at some point in the story, but it doesn't have to end on it. I love how <laughs> no, there has to be, there has to be moments of safety and tranquility. I was going to say. That's what you have to I was going to say, it would yeah. be raining to be like, it, it ends on a good light, right? Not necessarily. <laughs> and, it would, and it would be me and Amber like shouting him down. No, no, no I don't no. mean happy endings. I just it mean. Can. But it doesn't have to. No, I, and again, I don't mean happy endings. I mean, it, it ends on that glimmer of hope, but there should absolutely be the undertone that it's not the end. Like, there is something worse or something still terrible lurking behind everything. That's one way of doing it. So, the, yeah, the partner to that ending on hope, the other way to look at that is also ending on dread. There's hope for the future, but there's also dread of the horrible things that may continue to yeah, contain. Yeah, again, the duality. <laughs> Sometimes ending on the unknown, too, right? 
That's the unknown is horrible. The unknown is one of the scariest things in the world. It, it is speaking the of like human nature, that's what people are most afraid of across all cultures and uh, lives and circumstances. It's what you don't know or don't understand. Yeah. If, if you're running, here's the best tip I can give anyone who wants to run a horror game your players' imaginations are way scarier than anything you will ever come up with to present to them at the table. Don't present them the monster, present them things and let them imagine what's going mm. on. Yeah. They will scare the hell out of themselves. Yeah. Um, I, one thing I want to say is that I, I don't, I might be jumping ahead to a different point uh, that we had wanted to discuss, but it's something that kind of got brought up is, you know, we're talking about balancing the, the horror and dread with the lighthearted. If you have those lighthearted moments, it makes the characters care about one another and almost the thought of something bad happening to another friend or someone you care about is almost worse than it happening to you. So the fear becomes twofold. It's like, you're not the one who's got a giant monster picking you up, but oh my God, that's your sister. Oh my God, that's your best friend. And somehow that becomes even worse. So having those moments of care and laughter makes the horror 10 times worse than it normally would be. Yeah, because you're empathizing with the victim who you care about, and you're also experiencing the heart of failure, failing to protect them, which is also really big. <laughs> I love this. So talking about that, talking about the emotional response of these games, and we've been talking about when you're playing these games, you never know what your players are going to feel. You never know how they're going to react to certain things. So again, the way I approach a lot of these games is I love looking at mechanics and seeing how games succeed at doing the thing they aim to do. And in horror games, that is exactly what they're trying to do is get that emotional response, get that heart rate up, you know, get that anxiety in, in the players. And I think one thing that's really cool is, you know, a lot of these games, a lot of the best horror games that I've seen, and not even that I've played, but I've looked at the rules and seen, you know, these are the most popular ones, I find the beauty of them is that they usually have the simplest rules. Call of Cthulhu is a D100 roll under. Like, that's about all you really have to worry about. You always know your chance of success in that game, which makes it stressful because you're looking at the number going, I have to roll under this. There's other games um, that use props, a lot of, you know, popular ones. Uh, Dread, which uses the Jenga tower. That's literally a stressful moment when they're like, you have to remove three of those tiles. Like, that's that's making you very nervous right off the bat. You're going, oh, how am I going to do this? I'm going to, it's going to crumble and I'm going to die. Uh, ten candles, you literally write light ten candles. And when the last one goes out, your character is dead. You know, time limits are another tangible thing that I think really enhance the feeling of dread, of horror. And then the game I was talking to you guys about before, Chair, which is a borderline RPG, but definitely a an experience where you are putting yourself in a position and uh, getting uncomfortable. I think that a lot of games approach the mechanics and how you are even playing the game. Stress, insanity, you know, things like that. Um, they write it into the rules, but keep it simple enough that that's not going to ever overshadow how you're emotionally responding to the prompt, the game. Yeah. Do any of you have examples? Mm -hmm. Did you want to? Did you want to read chair, Rainy? Is that something we want him to, to I, do? I, mean, I don't chair, want to read chair because it is not a free game, and I would love to. Roger that. But Roger I will say that. this: if you're interested in a very interesting experience, go check out Adira Slattery's chair. It's on itch.io. Uh, I think it's only three dollars. It's definitely an interesting predicament that you are willingly putting yourself in. 
Yeah, so I would say I'll I'll talk about the mechanically uh, Call of Cthulhu because that's the one I'm most familiar with. But I think it's it's very similar to Esther and Est- Shadow Estrogen. Esther and fucking horror. Shadows <laughs> of Estrogen. Shadows of Estrogen. Which we've we've established that Shadows of Estrogen <laughs> is the role the Golden Girls role playing game. That's what we've established. <laughs> no, Shadows of Estrogen is just weird. Right anyway, uh, both of them have madness, madness mechanics. Okay, uh, and that's a really a, a good point in different horror role playing games. In D anD D, you have hit points, right? And that's your lifeblood. You have a number that is this is how much you're gonna live, right? Or when they're out, when that number's gone, you're dead. Uh, sanity in Call of Cthulhu is the same thing. So you have a dwindling resource. So mechanically. There's a difference between the player being scared and the, and the, the character being horrified by something, right? Uh, so, you know, you're always trying to scare your players, but ideally, you know, the characters have to react to things that they're going into probably more than the players. Uh, but also mechanically, it's very, very difficult to portray that with a character uh, without some sort of dwindling resource. So Call of Cthulhu has sanity, which is like you see something horrible, you have to make a sanity check. It's a D100 roll under the number of notes, number of sanity points you have left. And if you fail, you lose some more. And so there's a built-in expiration date on your character. And, and you know that, and you play with that, and that informs your decisions. And Astrid has something similar to that. I'll, I'll let Troy talk about it a little more, because I think it might be a little bit better for a longer-term game. Uh, Call of Cthulhu you know, has campaigns, but it's notorious for people running through four or five characters to get through that campaign. So... I won't talk about Estrin too much, only because I know everybody is going to want to watch our Shadows of Estrin DMs After Dark series. So obviously they're all super familiar with it anyways. But I will say this. One of the things that I think is the most horrific about having a system like that, a system of just like, like just degenerating health or, or mental wellness over time is that it's horrific even when you do survive. Like if you're presented with a horrific thing um, and you make it through, you fight the monster, you stave off, you know, whatever type of uh, horror you're exposed to, shit, now what? Like it's affected your character and the fact that you have to continue onward after that, you might be different. Your character might have things that they are fighting with or struggling with now and you have to continue in spite of that. And that is horrifying. Um, so that is that is what mechanically that's represented by that mental resistance though, like your mental, your trauma uh track. I think that's what we were gonna Yeah. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. So um no, that's great. And I I think of our game that we play right now, we have a we have a campaign we've been running for a couple of years now. Uh, and you know, one of the characters in the game, Ian, he's a pre-generated character and Amber's playing him and he's just been through some crazy ass <laughs> shit. And he is on the verge of just mentally descending into madness and the way that he has to deal with that and live in and live through that. And it also provides fantastic role-playing opportunities too. I mean, if the character's exposed to something that's very jarring and it gives them some sort of, you know, horrific trauma to a specific thing uh, or place or person, that presents great role-playing opportunities for that player later. Yeah, Ian is not okay, guys. <laughs> um, I'll talk a little bit about Bluebeard's Bride's mechanics, just a little bit, because some of it I don't want to spoil for the players. It's really something you have to experience. But um, Bluebeard's Bride is a game by Magpie Games, um, and it's 
really brilliant as horror games go. It's very different. Um, a lot of horror games uh, like Call of Cthulhu and Shadows of Estrin, they focus on the horror experience by the character and then the horror experience by the player is secondary. Bluebeard's Bride does this in reverse. What's important is the horror experience by the player and then the horror experience by the character is secondary. Um, and it does this by making it so there's only one actual character. Uh, there's just the bride. All the players are playing one aspect of her psyche. Um, and they are both helpful and unhelpful at any given time to this uh, to this young woman. And um, the intent, the mechanics are very elegant and they're very poignant. And they reinforce certain uh, motifs about feminine horror, such as powerlessness um, and self-harm in a lot of ways. Um, so it's, you look at the options that you have and you start playing the game. You're like, these are the things I can do. And then as you get into situations, you look at the options that you have and you realize you don't have any options. Um, so the game kind of systemically strips away your agency um, in a way that is profoundly uncomfortable. Um, fear is not the only feeling associated with horror. So anxiety, powerlessness, frustration, all of these are like tent, like core horror emotions. And the players will be feeling that by the end of this game. Um, it's an incredibly frustrating game, especially when you're used to playing other RPGs where like the golden rule is to give your players agency and the ability to make meaningful choices on the world. Um, this game basically does the opposite. Uh, and it's not comfortable. Um, it's not fun. <laughs> Bluebeard's Bride is not a fun game. It is a valuable game. Um, it is an insightful game, but it's definitely not fun. Uh, which is one of the reasons I love it so much. Uh, it also does have a sort of sanity mechanic. Um, different aspects of the bride's psyche will take trauma throughout the game. If they fill their trauma track, they can shatter, and then they basically become um, incredibly unhelpful voices in the bride's head that basically try to destroy her from the inside um, and uh, work against the other players at the table while all everyone's still realizing that you're trying to keep the same one woman alive. I love that mechanical stripping away of player agency as a representation of the powerlessness that is horror games, that inhabiting not the hero, the, you know, the mm -hmm. victim a lot of times, you know? Yeah, well, I can't wait to show this. I can't wait for you to experience it because you can hear about it, you can read about it, but until you're actually in a situation and you look at all the every move that you have available and you realize all the things that you don't have available and that's kind of the core of the game is that moment when you get into a situation and you realize that so you all are a bunch of um like educated nerds and shit um did we want to segue into the uh language 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 uh <laughs> aspect of a bunch of educated yeah. nerds Yes. Educated nerd here yeah. and writer. <laughs> Educated nerds. Language, yeah, language. I'm the MFA in, in, in the group here. Um, so basically role-playing games are collaborative stories. They're writing a novel without writing the words down and without having complete control over everything that happens in the novel because like five other people do also. Um, the importance of language and choosing language meaningfully and employing certain... Um, like mechanics and literary devices in horror is kind of amplified uh, because you can you can laugh off a crappy description of something in Dungeons and Dragons. Um, and that's fine. That's part of the fun of it is all those little jokes that come up from the slips or the poorly described things or the misunderstandings about how the room is or what people are doing. 
Um, but in a horror game, that's going to shatter your suspension of disbelief if it's not timed well. Like you're going to be like, this was bad. This was terrifying. And now it's hilarious. <laughs> but like in an unintentional way, which is not great. It takes people out of the moment. Or or you inadvertently gave information, you know, players picked up what you put down and picked it up wrong. And I'll give you a really good example of that um, mm. in, the, in the back in the Call of Cthulhu uh, Hudson and Brand game that Sarah was a part of. Uh, we ran with the, a scenario where they went to this uh, small town. They were hired by this rich guy who was like, look at this like semi-abandoned town on the coast. I want to make a resort out of it, right? Uh, and the, the the town is infested by these ghouls who found a, a cauldron, like, you know, like a, like from Irish myth, a cauldron where you, you know, you, you drink from it and you become immortal. But what you're drinking is like parts of people. So you have to become a cannibal and you become a ghoul, right? Uh, and... Ghouls in Lovecraft have hoofed feet, so they clomp around. And so these people, uh, my party, my wonderful, wonderful players, get to the town immediately. And this is my fault. I'm like, well, you know, there's like an old, there's an old, uh, your your typical old, like you know, broken down inn with like a crusty old innkeeper woman who's like super suspicious. There's a uh, another shopkeeper who's like a complete asshole who they they fell in love with. Uh, and, and then there was, um, you know, an old church. So where do they go? They go right to the church. Where are the ghouls hiding out? Under the freaking church, right? So like 20 minutes in, they're like, we're going to go to the church. We're going to go inside. They go right to the door. On the other side are like 20 ghouls. They're going to get destroyed. And I'm like, yeah, well, you know, I'm describing. You hear something like clobbing back and forth. And they're like, how did a horse get down there? Let's let the horse out. And internally, I'm like, shit, because they're going to open this door and just get annihilated. And I screwed up with my language because I didn't make it creepy enough. I just, I just Random described, popping. you know, they think, like, you know, right, there's a horse clopping around under a church somehow. You say you hear something yeah. clopping. What clops? A horse? A goat? A goat, however, has some horror connotations, depending on how you spin it. So that's a, that's a motif that you can use. And I was hoping they would go with goat, you know, but no, they went Listen, with horse. It's Victorian England, horse. and we're all from the city. I thought this was going to be like they made like a bronies no. joke or something. No, they didn't. Like, they didn't. <laughs> we just thought there was a horse like, yeah. in the basement. Well, so I, yeah, my my slip up, and it wasn't a horror game, but Blades in the Dark is wet pulsing bumps. Oh. You have to really have you have to really have uh, context for what you are telling your players to make sense of. But that actually is interesting because you know we're talking about how important language is in a game like horror, and we always talk about how GMs should prep or think about presenting their game. I think that's actually a really interesting point you brought up, Amber, about making sure you understand the literary devices and mechanics you're using. In my opinion, because a lot of these horror games have minimal mechanics, like dice rolling and things like that, like it's not complicated, it's more about the experience than the crunch, language is almost your GM prep, right? Like you you need yeah. to know what yeah, you're going to you say. Yeah, what you're foreshadowing, what you're withholding. You're always managing what information you give, but also the information you're purposefully withholding is very important. See, that's great. I love that. That's really cool. You need to like, um, like load certain words and phrases with um, power or importance so you can get certain effects when you drop that word in here or there intentionally. Are you hungry? And like uh, just like certain visual things you can make symbolic. Uh, you can... All the things that you do in a well-crafted novel, you should be doing in, like, GMing a horror game. Yeah, when, when you when you write it, you also, you know, if you sit down and you write the scenario, you prepare it, like, with Mothership, uh, the scenario I'm going to run, uh, 
which will have aired already. So make sure you check that out by the time this one, this episode airs. You should go back and watch it to see what happens. But uh, you write two stories almost. What, what really happens or what's really happening and what the players when they come in are going to encounter and how they can get to figure out what's happening. And, and for me, I, I, I'm a pretty visual person. So I, I almost, you have, these, you have these set pieces, right? Like getting to the town and uh for the for the ghoul story with the with the goats uh, and the, and the hooves and the horses in the basement like getting to the town what do they see uh you know what are the ghouls going to do uh, uh, you know to react to what they did at the end that 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 whole adventure ended really epically actually because they they pissed the ghouls off and the ghouls attacked so they wound up held up in this like uh abandoned house just fighting them off with shotguns and you know fire bombs and stuff uh, and so you, you visualize those things. What is that going to look like? Well, you see these things kind of like creeping out of the basements in the dark and you can't quite make out what those figures are. You hear the door open in the background and they're coming through and, you know, something's downstairs. What are you going to do? Uh, so you visualize those set pieces and then you let the players kind of react to them. I have a question. What are your feelings on setting ambience in horror games with like music or props or things like that? Do you guys think that there is, obviously nothing is a must have, but do you think that that really is a valuable tool or do, does it not matter as much as the language you're using and the situations you're presenting? I think the language definitely matters more in the way you're GMing and the content definitely matters more. Um, And I think that props and uh, things like music, um, they're really so case by case specific because like that may enhance one game like really well. But, like, if you have, like, a soundtrack and, like, the wrong sound happens at the wrong time, it can totally derail something. <laughs> like, um, it's also some groups find music very distracting and some find it enhancing, too. Like, I personally don't really love having music around uh, in the games that I'm playing or running. I find it distracting. Um, but I'm more, uh, I do more enjoy, like, physical props and Bluebeard's Bride. You're supposed to have, like, a physical ring that you pass around to show um, which aspect of the bride's psyche is in command of her body. Um, when I played that at Gen Con, that was actually really cool. And uh, it was also really interesting to watch players fidget with it when they had the ring, just war- like physically worrying with it as they got more and more stressed out. Um, that was a, that was an interesting thing to observe um, and to experience. So it, it really, it really depends. Jess likes using props. I was just going to say, so. I, I- yeah, I, I do. And I, I think it's a preference and I think you have to have a real timing for it, right? Like if you're playing a horror game and the idea of playing in like a dimly lit room, right? Or like having just like a red light, like that can really add to the atmosphere and also put your players in the right atmosphere. Like this is this is contentious, right? And, and Amber is right. Like obviously like the words and the situation that you're presenting are going to matter so much more. But a lot of those little things can add, you know, to the atmosphere just to get you in the, the right immersion. Um, my One of my favorite things about horror is just that simple like, high-pitched silence that they do in horror movies right like that high-pitched ring uh, the tinnitus ring, where like yeah. everything is still yes yeah that is that is that is when like my heart starts beating fast I'm like oh shit something's gonna happen I know something's gonna happen I don't know what it is but something's gonna happen yeah heartbeat um, sounds right there's a lot of yeah heartbeat sounds yeah and but the thing for that is that you have to time it right yeah. right so like if you don't that's when you kind of lose that immersion or it becomes distracting yeah it's definitely more work than you need to do but it just seems to me like horror is a genre that really would benefit from and again not over the top stuff but like just the the one ring 
that you have to pass around the mm-hmm. table, right? Or like, you know, the one droning note in the background that's constantly there and like might after a little while really just start being uncomfortable, you know? Things a couple like that. candles burning low. Yeah, that's great. I, right. I think those are things that add to the game, right? I think, you know, I, I'll, I'll say I've run horror games in the basement of the library that Amber works at under fluorescent lighting and, you know, in the middle of the day. And I think they've gone pretty well. You know, that's me saying it, but, you know. I was just going to say. Yes. Christian, wasn't yeah, it with your the Latin. game? I yeah, forgot that was it was awesome. someone's game where I had to, like, do a chant. Yes, yes we were chanting in Latin, in the Latin. And that, that creeps me out, too. I was like, oh, shit. That, that was with the Latin. And so that, that, was, that was the game, actually, yeah, I was thinking of, which is uh, Edge of Darkness, which is a very, very famous Call of Cthulhu scenario. Uh, so I'm not spoiling it because it's been out for about almost as long as I have. Uh, and, um, <laughs> yeah, hundreds of years. <laughs> it actually predates the Bible, uh, and it um, it's it, you 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 you're all students, and you know your professor's dying, and he says, "Please go and correct this mistake I had when I was a kid. I, I had these friends, and we tried to summon this monster in this old farmhouse in the middle of nowhere, and I." we freaking succeeded and the thing's still out there. And when I die, it's going to be released. You know? So they, you have the, they have these props, which are like his journal and a chant. And, you know, it's a pretty simple thing. Like you do the ritual and the thing's gone. But what, what I did was I made them actually do the chant. Cause it's an hour. They have to chant for an hour. I didn't make everyone chant for an actual hour. It was kind of creepy. Like if you were raised with any sort of religious upbringing, I had a bunch of people <laughs> in the library chanting in Latin. And if, if someone, you know, as long as one person's chanting, the thing's still going on. Uh, but if someone, you know, if everybody stops, oops, you got to start over again. So yeah, I had people chanting and it worked out. I think that worked out really well. Yeah. And that was a game we had props in. It's kind of like the chair effect. Like it's such a weird thing to do to chant in Latin out loud with some with some people who are, some of which are strangers, like it's very uncomfortable to do that. And you don't, you don't even speak Latin. You're like, I'm butchering this. And you're just really uncomfortable, which is great for horror. <laughs> and, and you know, that was like, I think that was the very first game I ever ran for you guys. And I was like, wow, everybody just like leaned right in. I was surprised actually. I thought people were going to be like, I'm not fucking chanting Latin. Are you insane? You old asshole. But that's that's something we said at the very beginning. Horror games are definitely one of those ones that you need that player buy-in, you know? And and people should go in knowing that the purpose of this game is to experience that uncomfortable powerlessness and, you know, uh, dread, anxiety. Funny story from that game, now that I think about it, too. <laughs> Amber's character bought a raincoat. Just, out of, just completely out of the blue, I'm going to buy a raincoat, right? And so, coincidentally... The, the the monsters like in the in the in the attic and one of the things like, oh. is it starts dripping acid on you and she was like oh i have a raincoat and i'm like oh you know what you don't get damaged so when your players do weird things uh reward awesome. them i was like best purchase ever expired fire extinguishers <laughs> yeah right fire extinguishers and, uh, Troy. that's oh. another game yeah and back to the, the props jokes. and um and uh sort of enhancements uh another thing about bluebeard bright in addition to that ring prop is we played at a round table, which was really, really important for that game because you're sitting at the table and you can't escape the looks on your sister's faces ever. <laughs> so you're you're faced with the own discomfort that you're feeling and the discomfort that you can visibly see on everybody else at all times. And it created an effect very much like being stuck inside your own head, helpless to your own thoughts, um, even your self-destructive ones. Uh, and that was really, really cool. I think when a game designer puts in that kind of effort um, and attention to detail, 
it's worth giving it a try, right? Different things are work for different people. But if you're if your game designer is going to implement, um, you know, if they have a, a ring or if they advise you sit at a round table because of these things that Amber described or um, uh, again, I reference Shadows of Estering because it's probably the only horror specific genre I've played. But the um, you know, they they advise you play certain tracks from certain um, CDs that they've come up with. And uh Sorry, my kids are ringing the doorbell. It's speaking of horror, they're home. Um, but yeah, so you know, they, they suggest playing certain soundtracks at certain moments. They put a lot of time and thought into that. So if you have the opportunity, especially if you're able to play with a group in person, not virtually, I feel like that adds a lot to it. Give it a shot. If you don't like it, you don't have to do it. Yeah, especially especially if it's something you've never done before, right? If uh, that element of uh, weird or like out of what you're ordinarily doing. Um, that just adds a little bit of discomfort right away. Right. I actually like something Troy Bridge said about playing in person too. And I think like horror can work over zoom, uh, just like D and D can or any other game, but there's something really special about like sitting in the room together when you're doing it. Uh, you know, you're right there as a DM, there's, there's a very sadistic pleasure in running a horror game and that you're actually like, you know, these people are like, okay, you can, you know, torture me basically for the next couple of hours. Uh, and I'm going to be all right with that. I'm going to have a good time. Uh, and so, you know, when, when you're there and you get to really like physically experience people's discomfort, cause it doesn't always come through on a camera on zoom, the way someone might fidget or tap their pencil on the table or whatever. But, you know, when you're in person and you see it, that's, it's a lot of fun. Because everybody, when people are together, they tend to get more scared than when they're all kind of in their comfort zone at home. Apart. Yeah, I was just going to say there's body language and vibes that go off, right? People yeah. vibe off of each other. And when that tension is there, it can be felt in the room. Uh, just one thing I wanted to note, at least if for horror in general, is just horror is one of those things that you can kind of accomplish on a really simple level and get really, really complex. I feel like a lot of the times when people think about horror, when they try to do a horror in their game, they do like really detailed, gruesome monsters or really crazy scenarios, right? But one of the most tense, like scariest I've ever been was with Troy's um, Shadow of Estrin game. He was just describing kind of being in this compact like tunnel, just, just crawling through this dark tunnel. And just the way he described it was one of the scariest things I like have ever felt during Yay. like an RPG game. And that was something so simple, right? Just being confined. Um, there was no, yeah, there was no like really crazy situation. There was no like, um, crazy monster i was just scared about yeah. crawling through this tunnel i mean sure we were being chased but like the crazy monster was behind that us too but just where the way he described that part in its own like i i was scared less is more in horror i think it's a really good point yeah um and i i will say one last thing i i know i was i was chatting with amber earlier saying like i don't do horror and she goes no you did remember that one time and sometimes horror can be a tiny element of a major game there was a game that I ran. It was a fifth edition D&D one shot where, and I won't say what it is or what happens at the end. Basically this NPC has to die in order for success. And there is no way around it. And it's an NPC that the party is made very sympathetic towards through the entire adventure. Um, and players in my party literally started taking on parental your roles for this NPC. But in order to win, they had to die. And so watching my players fight to do anything they could to prevent that and then going, 
there's nothing that can be done. Powerlessness. I broke some hearts that day. Yeah, heart is also heartbreak. Sometimes the powerlessness, um, especially in a game like D and D, where you are these heroes, it's it makes it scary and it brings out the the horror of the world around you more. What you just described really very much reminded me of um, Rorschach's final moments in the, uh, the hell was the name of that movie? The Watchmen. Watchmen. Where... Dude, spoilers for a 40-year-old comic. Yeah. I know. I know that's Christian's uh, <laughs> niche, but uh, it's it's basically like, you know, he knew. But spoilers yeah, are being spoilers old. for a 40-year-old comic specifically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, it's like uh what he found out all this bad shit that was happening. He's like, the world has to know. And I think it was what was it, Dr. Manhattan or whatever, and he's like, You can't leave. Like if if you go, like I will Dr. Manhattan. And he's like, it doesn't matter, like I'm I'm doing this. And uh, yeah, that reminded me a little bit of uh that that thing that you just said. I think sometimes the players do, they adopt that. Yeah, it's actually Rorschach actually reaches a point where he wants to die, and he's just like, "Go on, do it. Like, just blast me because I don't want to live in yeah. this world." Uh, which is, yeah, that's talk about a horror. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's cool. I I thought of that when you uh, when you described that. Players a lot of times will get super invested in their characters, and uh, um, you know, the last episode that you guys did, you talked about player deaths and stuff, and as you alluded to last last uh, podcast. There are so many things worse than death and, uh, and horror really, really, uh, it just highlights that tremendously, especially if you do it well. So. All right. Well, I think that's probably where we should wrap it up. Just remind people that horror does not come when everything ends. Horror is when there's worse things on the horizon. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Thank you guys uh, so much for listening to this episode of Modified Roles, where we chat about horror uh, and on the podcast in general, all things RPG and nerdy. If you enjoy this, please consider giving us a subscribe on whichever podcast platform you subscribe to. We'd really appreciate it. Come follow us over on twitch.tv slash DMs After Dark for all of our live streams and craziness. We are also on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter all under DMs After Dark. You can reach out to us on any of those platforms as well as via email at dmsafterdark at gmail.com. Take care of one another. Stay horrible. We love you. Bye.